Hey lovelies, before we get started, I have some news. The Lightweight Snuggle dress is now in stock and ready to ship. The Lightweight Snuggle is actually the first time that I've decided to offer a style for two different seasons and it was honestly just because it was such a highly requested item after everyone loved the original Snuggle dress that I couldn't resist. The original Snuggle dress got rave reviews for the super flattering cocoon shape and unique puff sleeves that are designed to make you feel just as fantastic as a good cuddle from someone you love. The lightweight snuggle is the same design, just in a lighter weight fabric for spring. It's the perfect transitional piece and is available in sizes extra small through 2X. The extra small fits sizes 2 to 4 in my line. The 2X fits, fits sizes 22 to 24, so the range is just as inclusive as ever. The lightweight snuggle dress comes in three colors, oatmeal, which is a beautiful tan color that's completely opaque and great for layering, heather gray, a beautiful mid-tone gray that's nearly sold out as I record this. Sign up for the waitlist if you'd like to be notified of returns or restocks. And charcoal, a deep rich tone that's not black and works on all skin tones. Get yours at impactfashionnyc.com. This week is Tanis Esther, a day when we recognize the sacrifices Esther made and the role she played in the Purim story. It's also Purim, but I'm going to focus on Tanis Esther for a second. Esther was actually an aguna, not in the way that we use the, um, term now, but in the kind of traditional halakhic sense of the word. Tanis Esther is also used to bring awareness to the situation of agunot, using the modern translation, in our communities. Exactly a year ago this week, Orthodox women across social media, mostly on Instagram, got together to wear pink for Chava, a woman whose husband, Naftali Eyal Sharabani, had been refusing to give her a get for 10 years. I wanted to mark this occasion I guess, I don't know, by revisiting a conversation I had with Dr. Shana Friedman, the director of Shalom Task Force, as part of a four-part series I did last year on domestic violence in response to the Aguna crisis. In taking the time to reflect on what we've accomplished in this past year, I'm proud of how far we've come while also really painfully aware of how far we have to go. It's still being talked about. This is still something that we hear about in our community. Maybe not the same level it was this time last year, but the topic and plight of the Agunot has not disappeared. As someone who checks it every single week, I also can't help but notice that the list of people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party has increased, which I think is a good thing, which every woman who comes forward and speaks up about her situation, we as a community get a little closer to eliminating this issue entirely. And also, I can't help but acknowledge that a year after the firm world blew up for her, Chava still doesn't have her get. So there are currently 16 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. See their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. I hope you enjoy this very important episode from last year. This episode is the second in a four-part series exploring domestic abuse and abusive divorce practices in the Orthodox Jewish community. The episodes each stand alone and do not need to be listened to in the order that I release them. However, if you missed last week's conversation with Batya Reyes, I do recommend that you give it a listen at some point. Together, all four of these conversations provide a really full look at this issue. With all of the movement that has been happening to help, to help Agunos, I got to thinking about the bigger picture issues that create these problems. We know that an Aguna, a woman unable to get out of a marriage because her husband will not grant her a divorce, is never created in a vacuum. Get refusers are abusers, and refusing to grant the get is not the first type of abusive behavior they exhibit. The goal of this series is to zoom out and explore the issues. We'll get first-world perspectives, talk about prevention, and examine what the Jewish divorce process is like and where it can and does go wrong. 
If at any point during listening to this series, you find yourself relating to anything being discussed, maybe you recognize a pattern in your own relationships or those of a friend or family member, I urge you to reach out for help. You deserve to be treated properly and you deserve to be safe. The National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE and Shalom Task Force can be reached at 718-337-3700. You can also text or WhatsApp Shalom Task Force at 888-883-2323. Both services are free, both are completely confidential and open 24-7. Both are available to listen if you believe there might be a problem. Like you'll hear us discuss today, there are many types of abuse and there doesn't need to be a black eye for a relationship to be abusive. If you are concerned that your internet or phone usage may be monitored, please take extra precautions like using private mode, frequently clearing your browser history, and saving the hotline numbers in your phone under a generic name. With the sincerest hope that you never need it and that those who already do are truly listening. Let's get to the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with the director of Shalom Task Force about domestic violence. She shares what it is and isn't, the importance of having voice in a relationship, the barriers survivors have to leaving, and what the community can do to help. Dr. Shauna Friedman is plain spoken and practical in a way that really appeals to me. As head of the agency that is the first that comes to mind for many who think of domestic violence in the Orthodox community, she's at the forefront of dealing with really complicated issues. Shalom Task Force distills that down to fostering positive relationships. So let's break down what that means. Can you tell me what you were like as a little kid? Oh, I, I've heard you ask this question before and kind of pondered it. Um, believe it or not, as a little kid, I was fairly shy. Um, and that still exists. I can be a bit of an introvert, um, but I've always been, I'd say, an observer and pretty thoughtful about things. Um, and I grew up in a home that um, believed in doing things. I, mean, I credit my parents doing things that are important to the community, but not in a loud way. So I think that I've, <laughs> I kind of inherited that. Um, I, I'm not always comfortable being like the center of the party, um, but I, I like to be able to give. So um, that, that's, that, I feel like that's stuck with me a lot. That makes perfect sense to me based on, on the work that you do now. Um, I, you, you are a doctor, but you are not someone who practices medically. So uh, what, you know, what, what kind of doctor are you? Oh, and, first of all, call and, me Shana. Um, call I, you Shana, I, no problem. Call me Shana. Um, so I have a PhD in social work, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and then I went back to get a PhD in social welfare from Hunter. Um, and that was kind of done on a whim because I felt like I just wanted to learn more academically and, and really involve myself in scholarship around this issue. And there um, honestly are not enough um, Orthodox Jewish women in PhDs in social sciences. Um, I think it's important that we have a voice and a place in the scholarship around our experience. Sure. Um, what is social welfare? I don't know what that means. Social welfare is academic social work. So oh, okay. it's taking, it's, it's moving away from like, let's say the clinical social work, which I have, you know, my, my credentials in, but really looking at um, 
like the social justice piece of it or understanding marginalized communities and looking at um, more the macro level of social work. So um, that's what my PhD is, but so, so it's basically academic social work. Um, and I went back because I really did feel like there is a lack of literature and scholarship around the Orthodox Jewish female experience. And I wanted to explore that. So that's what I did on the side um, um, for several years um, as I did my scholarship around, um, actually my dissertation is around um, Orthodox Jewish women's experience in college classes, premarital classes, um, and their sexual Wow, I want to read that. Yeah. But that's not our discussion today, but we'll do that another it time. It is not, um, but, but I want to um, read it. Different. <laughs> um, I'll send you the link. But um, yeah, so my research was really around women's experience um, in their, their sexual education before marriage and um, their experience initial intimacy within marriage. So, um, and there's, you know, not a lot of literature out there, actual scholarship out there around women's experience in our community, in this community. So, um, but my clinical experience really, and my passion um, clinically and as a therapist has always been working with um, victims of trauma, particularly intimate partner violence or domestic violence within, um, I've worked with all communities, but I have a specialization is working in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox community um, here in New York. But um, See, this is so interesting. I'm so glad that you brought up the academic piece because um, I just, we just had on the show, uh, Dr. Lesby, Leslie Ginsberg-Klein. Huge fan, huge fan of hers. Me too. And yeah. and I was connected with her through um, Avital Chizik Goldschmidt and, and it was such an honor to have her on the show. And this notion of taking an academic approach to things that, you know, it's important to study things, you know, it's important to get that real data and see what we're really talking about and what that really means. And I'm just so glad that, um, that we've been able to have these conversations around, you know, really studying things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because I don't really spend a lot or enough time on that right now in my life. And we'll talk about more what I'm doing. But, you know, for so many reasons, when you think about social justice, or making change in the world, or making sure there's enough allocation of funds or programs developed for an issue, you do need to be able to demonstrate need and data. And data could be quantitative or qualitative, so it doesn't have to be always numbers. But just using anecdotes, it's helpful and it could be very moving, but it's really not enough. I mean, being very practical, someone who runs a nonprofit, it's not enough to get the grant money to be able to help the people who need to be helped. So there's real importance, though it's sometimes dry and boring, of, of working on um, the 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 numbers of it and the data of it and um and those of us who like it don't find it dry and boring um so there's enough of us <laughs> who who want want to see that out there um and it does become interesting uh, reading it was, it, i listened to um your your podcast with um dr ginsburg um klein and i know her and her work really is very inspiring um and um it, you know i think it's so important because you could look at those trends and see how do we make social change now looking at past past success, you know, the Beis Yaakov movement obviously is a, a great um, example of that. Yeah, so you you mentioned that you are, you know, that you run a nonprofit. Um, I got connected to you through um, DMing Shalom Task Force on Instagram and saying, hi, I want to talk to somebody. Um, <laughs> and they and they lovingly volunteered you, whoever does your social media. Um, can you tell everyone a little bit about Shalom Task Force and how it got started and what it is that you do? Sure, absolutely. So Shalom Task Force is... Um, a nonprofit focused with a mission on combating domestic violence and helping foster healthy and safe relationships with a focus in the Jewish community. And we focus in the Jewish community because many people within the Jewish community won't go elsewhere for their services. So they wouldn't go to a general city agency or a secular agency. And we wanna make sure there's culturally informed services um, that are available to people who need this help. Um, 
And it's really important to understand that part, but we are not a Jewish agency. We're an agency that serves the Jewish community um, and, and bring with it the best practices and the, what's happening on the forefront of the field of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. So um, it was started, it's a really interesting story. So my background is that um, I've been working in the field of domestic violence for close to 20 years. And um, I started my work um, 20 years ago working at OHEL, which is another known agency um, in their kosher shelter. And what's interesting is that I've known Shalom Task Force my whole career because I think of anyone who lives within the Jewish community, it is like the name for domestic violence. Just like, oh, you're going through domestic violence, call Shalom Task Force. Not always knowing what we do, but we're, we're very often the voice. And that's really what, besides we're having this mission around social services and being in direct contact with survivors and helping people, we feel very strongly that we need to be the voice for this issue because it's an issue that's often not spoken about. Um, and it's a great history. Um, if you go back into the early 90s, um, Shalom Task Force started because um, a pediatrician, Dr. Lightman in, in the South Shore of Long Island, noticed um, some patients that were from the community that were going through domestic violence and realizing there was no one in the community that could serve them. And that was a barrier for them to get help. And she, he approached some women in the community. Um, the founding president was Nama Wolfson. Um, and there were some other women who are still involved, Esther Williams, Sarah Bergman, some women who are still involved, who said, this is going on. Um, what do we do? And they got together around a dining room table. This is what's described to me. I was not there. And they basically said, we have to do something. And I mean, you just think about that. That when, Right now, I think we think, oh, it's obvious. There's obviously going to be an agency that works with domestic violence victims. But back then, it was, so like, like, you know, out of the box, like people weren't doing it. And the women, and it was women who chose to do this and help with this, people were not thrilled with it. It was not being talked about. And if you look at the history, just policy-wise, and this is where the nerdy social welfare person in me comes out, is that in, this is happening in 93, for those of us who remember, and some of your listeners are probably too young, but in 94 was the big OJ Simpson um, chase of the white Bronco. That was really when domestic violence became a very public discussion, a public discourse for the general you know, new, uh, American community. And the Congress didn't pass um, the Violence Against Women's Act until 96. So you can imagine the women within this insular Orthodox Jewish community or Orthodox community chose to take this on in 93. They were ahead of the trend, like they really were. And they took this on and, um, and they started by just learning about it, figuring out what needs to be done. And their first first um, program, direct service, was to start a hotline. And that was, it was the first hotline, um, national hotline, for, with a focus on the Jewish community to say, hey, we're here and we still do this. Like, we, we, we hear you, we believe you, we're gonna help you. That's it, we're, we don't, you know, you call, we're not gonna, we, we validate your experience um, and we're gonna try to help you with a safety plan, figure out what you're thinking. And then if you're ready for it, we'll help you get to a, a local service that could help you with what's going on. So that was our first service was the hotline and our other services um, grew out of this experience. And that hotline still is staffed primarily by volunteers. So when we talk about um, quiet activism and people wanna make a difference, we have 65 women. They are unknown to people. They do it privacy. There's no, there's no awards for them because we're very particular. We want people to feel comfortable calling. But 65 women from throughout the community um, who are trained and who are supervised to respond to the calls. Um, and now to the chats, texts, and WhatsApp, I'll talk about that, but um, to the calls of anyone in the community and both men and women call. Um, and I would say 40% um, of our calls are not from the survivors themselves. And I think it's important to say they're from friends and family looking to know how to help. So when people think about calling Shalom Task Force, it doesn't mean 
um, it's about them. It could be just they don't know how to help a friend or how to be supportive. So that's um, that's the start, the starting the story. Um, and there's you know there's a lot since then. Yeah, and the uh, I, I'm so glad that you pointed out that notion of of calling for a friend. I have actually called Shalom Task Force for a friend. Yeah. Yeah, I did it. There was something that I saw that felt weird. Um, and I called and, and you know, it was fine. She was fine. Um, but I but knowing that there was someone that, that knowing that there was someone that I could call right. and say, I this feels strange, something about this feels strange. And it was okay, you know, kind of track it, see if you see, you know, x, y, and z, see if you talk to her and, and this and that happens. And then and all of that really, um, it made me as a friend feel, uh, feel and, empowered. You know, I mean, as a friend, I mean, even as someone who's trained in this, it, you don't always know what your role is, right? Or as a family member and how do we help people? But as a community, we don't want to look the other way. If we're seeing something that seems uncomfortable and doesn't feel right, you know, you don't want to just say, oh, it's their business. Um, we want to be able to be people who are upstanders and who are allies to people. And we want to, you know, our mission ends with creating safe and supportive community. And how do we do that? We have these discussions and we make it available to people because to assume, you know, I think most people want to be helpful, but to assume we know how to be helpful, why would we know how to be helpful? Like, where are we going to learn that? Right? Like, right. So, right. It's, it's hard. And we don't, we, we all have our strengths and we don't all have to be experts in everything, but we're here. People, you know, we always say um, to people when we're doing training, like the most important thing is to, to have a good Rolodex, right? You don't have to be the expert on everything, but you have to, we want people, particularly leaders, but we want everybody to know where they could call, right? Where can you reach out if you need help with something? And social task force really serves that. And I'll say this past year with COVID and it's a whole larger discussion of an increase of domestic violence and partner violence during um, during a pandemic, just thinking about being trapped at home with someone who's who's um, abusive, who hurts. Um, we um, opened a text chat WhatsApp line in addition to our phone line. Um, you know, we were planning on doing this because I think people under a certain age don't really call anymore. You know, we all text and chat. Um, but also, you know, if you're stuck at home, can you really call? And there's absolutely safety implications, I'll put it out there, using digital also. But for some people, it's safer. And, and that's only, um, that's staffed by our, our mental health professionals at this point. But it's been really interesting because it's become a place um, not only around particularly abusive relationships so people people need a place to discuss relationships and just check in and we're getting a lot of calls really from i would say age 16 to 30 i mean like a lot of texts and chats ages 16 to 30 just kind of like asking general questions about relationship health and relation like just relationships and where do we learn these skills you know and how do we learn these skills and so um that's one of our services as well yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that you went there as well, because, you know, I think that it's clear if we get kind of a baseline, what, you know, you deal with domestic violence, what is domestic violence? What does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, you know, at what point does something go from being annoying to being abusive? <laughs> so anybody who's been honored and privileged to be in a relationship that I call healthy enough, I don't, you know, romanticize relationships. No, there are times where things are annoying. So I happy, good that you put it out there. Domestic violence is a relationship where there's a pattern of behaviors that one person's trying to obtain and maintain power and control over the other one. And they do that through a number of things. And there's a level of fear. So we're looking for three things. If you saw, if you would see that on my board when I teach this, you're looking for a pattern of behavior that's power, control, and there's fear. So you're not looking for um, just kind of like having a hard time in a relationship. You're looking for ways that someone's trying to control the other person. And what the I think most people, when they hear about domestic violence, and the literature talks about it as intimate partner violence, and there's all this like politics about what you're supposed to call it, but you're thinking, talking about people who are in a relationship 
primarily adults, but also adolescents. We do a lot of work with teens around relationships. Um, is people automatically go to physical violence. And in many ways, as my clients will say, that's the black and blue of it, the black and white of it. Like, that's very clear, right? Like, we all we, we all very easily define someone who hits, shoves, chokes, strangles, kicks, whatever, you know, thing you can imagine, um, someone else is being abusive. Um, but that does not happen by itself. And that is not the only definition of domestic violence. And in many ways, um, that's almost the easiest one because people feel validated by that. We understand that, but that we could, we could, we could be working with someone or meet someone who's a survivor of intimate partner violence, who's maybe never experienced any physical violence. Um, they might know that there's an overt or covert threat of physical or sexual violence, but the violence could be all these other forms. And we could, we could talk a bit about those other forms. I think it's important for people to have a much broader view of of what it could look like, what can be controlling. So we talk about psychological and emotional abuse, you know, use of, of, of you know, how we interact with each other, name um, blaming each other, name calling. I shouldn't say each other, the one for the other. Um, isolating someone, um, like, you know, not letting them have um, um, resources. So we talk about isolation a lot because, and it's, it's when we talk about red flags later, it's something to think about. Um, we all experienced some level of social isolation over the last year. We know how hard it is not to be in touch with other people. Um, in a relationship that's fraught with um, intimate partner violence and abuse, often isolation is one of the first things you see where, and it can be very subtle, where um, the abusive party, I'll use he, though it's, men are often, or can also be victims, but the abusive party will not allow the person to have the relationship they had before. They'll say their friends aren't good enough or your family's not good enough and cut off, cut off all these people in their lives and the person becomes very isolated. And there's so many parts of that that's very terrifying, but um, what, what often happens is, is that then the person who's being abused um, won't have people to reach out to. So when they're ready to get help or they need help, they, they don't have people in their lives that are resources, right? Um, and people might be so frustrated with them because they no longer are visiting them or they're no longer calling them back that they won't be almost willing to, right? Willing to give to them. So it's this really terrible cycle. So isolation is a big one. So we're talking about physical abuse. We're talking about emotional, verbal. Um, other abuses that we see a lot of are, um, this is an interesting one, financial abuse. It's not about being on a budget as a family or as a couple. Um, it's about one person having control of it and someone not having voice. And I use that language a lot, voice. Like it's one thing if in your relationship you choose that one person's gonna be, even if it's a traditional gender role, the man's gonna be in charge of the money and she's gonna be in charge of the kids. People could choose to do what they want in their relationships, but if they have no voice in it, right? They can't say, oh, I want to be able to do this. Is it possible? Or can you tell me more about what's going on with our finances? And they're afraid to do that. Right, if they bring up their opinion and they think they're going to be hurt or they're afraid for other consequences, that's really problematic. Um, I think about financial abuse. I, I worked with this um, woman. She's an incredible woman, um, and she got married. And the community she got married, she's from. She got married in her late twenties, early thirties, and that was considered being older when you got married because from the community that she was from, she had worked. She was always independent, um, and they got married and. Um, they, I, I think about how she describes this, that they lived in Queens, and those, I don't know if everybody here is in New York, but that's an outer borough, it's not Manhattan, and it's probably 45 minutes to get to her office in Manhattan, and, you know, the relationship started in the beginning after they got married, that every morning he thought we should have breakfast together, they should have breakfast together, and he was, she was 
basically always late to work because of it, right? And she'd say, I really can't have breakfast. I can't sit around having breakfast. I need to get to work. And he's like, no, I love you so much. How can you leave me? You know, we need to have breakfast together as if it was very romantic, but it was impacting her ability to have her job. And then it, this was pre-times of, you know, cell phones all the time. And he started calling her all day at the office. So when she'd get there late, then he'd be calling, calling, and everybody would see this. And eventually um, she was fired um, because she couldn't do her job. She couldn't, and then all of a sudden she became very, very dependent on him. So there was this like financial control of her, right? And then that eventually escalated and after she had their first child, um, he became physically abusive. She literally walked into my office this is when I was doing direct practice work with her baby, like walking out after she was hit um, and was, was able to um, get divorced. So it brings us to another type of abuse where he withheld the Jewish divorce, the get, um, for at least 10 years. I'm trying to remember all the details. And and I, I know that you're gonna have other discussions, particularly about the get issue, um, but that brings us to an idea around spiritual abuse. So we had you know, emotional, verbal, physical, um, talking about financial, and then there's spiritual abuse. And particularly when you're working with um, individuals from communities of faith, and I've worked with, I think because I, I specialize in the Jewish community, I've, I've had the privilege of working with women um, from the deeply Christian community and the Muslim community, because a lot of the dynamic is very similar where where spiritual abuse can be defined in many different ways, but it's the use of like religion to abuse and control someone. And it's not a discussion of how observant you're gonna have, it's use of it to control someone. But it's also getting in the way of someone's relationship with their experience and their spiritual identity. So not allowing them to practice in a certain way. And the psychological consequence of that is often that the person then feels terrible about themselves. So if you can imagine, if you were raised to always do always keep the Sabbath in a very particular way, right? And you're Shabbat observant and you you can't cook on Shabbat, right? And doing that feels like a huge um, transgression of your relationship with God. And he he is in charge of the groceries and this is a particular case I worked with and he was in charge to not allow her to, to not give her money and not allow her to grocery shop. So she would show up, he would show up within the, the 18 minutes after the candle lighting, which is a very particular time, right? Where you're allowed to do a little work, but you're really racing against the clock. And then after that, within the, 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 the tradition of the community is to not be cooking, right? And she gets has 18 minutes to kind of pull together Shabbat. And then obviously that does not work. You cannot cook chicken or chicken soup or anything you want within 18 minutes, as we all know. And and then she would be trained to everything Shabbat. And then he would say, you know, kind of taunt her about this and she would feel terrible about herself. And in her mind, she felt she deserved to be abused because here she was someone who didn't keep Shabbat. So, I mean, so it, it takes on a life of its own and you see this in a lot of um, the use of like religious literature um, to prove that he's the master of the house where that's not the intention. So um, what we got into about with emotional, verbal, <laughs> there's just a lot of that. Yeah, I, I we, we've, like... covered, we've covered emotional, verbal, emotional. physical, financial and spiritual abuse. And yeah. the thing that, that to me is really I, I want to take a step back for just one second, yes. because when I when I heard you talk about, let's say, isolating someone from their friends, I would like to think. And and again, uh, as with many topics on this podcast, I have absolutely zero experience with this. And I'm talking out of my butthole a little bit, but I'm going to go Enjoy for it. it. Go. The um, I would like to think that if anybody and and, you know, there have been times when my mother has said something and I have been like, no, and then done whatever I wanted. So I so I have some right. some information to back this up. I have some data on my side. So you have voice. <laughs> exactly. No, but I would like to think that if somebody tried to tell me you can't see your friends, mm -hmm. I would say no. And then go and do like I would like to think that it, that in those kinds of situations, I would be the kind of person who would say 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I think is right for me. And wh- and what's the consequence there? Let's think it through. The consequence of your mother was when you were a 15 year old. Uh, there wasn't really much. Right. It was, okay. It was my mom okay, was a little so right. annoyed. Let's say the consequence. First of all, let's put it all. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. I know I was talking a lot. Maybe it's helpful. Let's go back to the, the definition. Of the We're looking for a pattern. So it's not like all of a sudden it's like you can't talk to your friend's family, go to work, um, do anything. It's kind of right. It's not like that. It's a subtle thing, right? So you're looking at at you know they get married and we talk about the example I shared about like, having breakfast anymore every day, right. right? So it's presented as something very romantic and very very caring. Right. But the consequence of it is loss of jobs. So in the beginning, it might be um, it might be, um, you know, sweetie, um, I think we just need to start stop spending so much time with your, your friend. She's she's so flirty. She's so inappropriate. Like she's just not good for you. And then you start taking that on. Right. And then, you know, your parents, they don't really seem to like me. I don't I don't really want to spend a lot of time with them. And in the beginning, it might be a little bit like more innocent feeling. Um, um, but it is an intentional way of like with like isolating someone and withholding them from their resources. Um, and this is not about someone's anger or their, I mean, the person might have an anger issue, but it's not why people are, are we're not going to go there, but why they're abusive. But, you know, and it's not, it's not like nobody, I, I've yet to meet anyone. And I, I, I've worked with easily a thousand survivors of domestic violence, right? I met met me some of that on the second date. It was like, you're going to not talk to your friend's family. I'm going to hit you and rape you, right? Okay. Right. So, because, right, it doesn't happen that way. It's really, right. I mean, I think, you know, that would be almost easy. Like, if it was really presented early in a relationship, it's often when there's some sort of bond already. There's something there. And typically, the abusive party um, is someone who's charming, they have strengths. They, they're not perceived by the rest of their community and world as someone who's off or weird. I mean, you know, they're they're typically people who who can pull off their lives for the most part in the rest of their lives. Um, you'd be surprised. Um, I mean, you wouldn't be because it's like almost trite to say that, but you'd be surprised some of the 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 abusive spouses what they are in the community. So it isn't that. Um, so yes, yeah, so you would say you would feel that you would have the voice, but if you're already in a relationship and you've already made this commitment, and perhaps you're pregnant, or perhaps. Um, there's a financial thing, uh, or you've made this decision. Maybe your parents have expressed, like, during the engagement, there's something that doesn't feel so great. Are you sure you want to go through this? And she decides that she does want to go through with it, right? And and then she already feels, like, on edge when someone says something. She already feels criticized. Um, you know, so it's not, it's never so isolated. And that's why I always come back to voice, because in any healthy enough relationship, right, and we talk about a continuum of healthy or healthy enough, high conflict, and then we talk about abusive, you know, you, there might be consequences. It might be that you get in a fight, right? You might, the person might express it and you say, I don't want to do that. And they're like, oh, I'm angry at you. And maybe you'll have a fight for a few days or a few weeks or, you know, whatever you're going through. Like that happens in relationships, but you don't feel fearful. And when you speak to survivors of domestic violence, um, they, they ultimately know, even if they've never experienced physical violence, that they're, they're afraid to express their voice. They're afraid. Um, and the fear part is, is critically important in understanding it. Um, and it's never, I've never seen it being one type of abuse. So, you know, something we didn't talk about yet and not to drone on about it, but like there's a technical, it's very interesting. It's like the new world of technological abuse and like use of cyber world to, to control someone. And I think those of us who have like teenage kids, and I'm not there yet, but those of us who have teenage kids, like look forward to the day that we could, you know, track our kids, right? We like to be able to track our kids and know where they are because that's what cell phones do. That's like we could feel safe. But imagine if someone's controlling you and they know exactly where you are. So they're coming to see their therapist 
and they could see that every day, every Wednesday at 11 o'clock, they're, they're at my office. Like, how dangerous can that be, right? They can't even go into therapy with like a little bit of privacy. So how do you manage that? So technology has really changed the game of stalking um, and what we can do. And there's more we can, people can control in more ways. Now, obviously, we work on remedies around that. But think about the world of social media and how we bully each other and like, I hate to say it that way, um, and what we, right or or the use of of you know we were working with an individual um, and you know within her marriage she took some very explicit pictures which if consensual there's absolutely nothing wrong with I mean that's an individual's decision right um, and they were you know very beautiful pictures uh, but he had them and when when she chose to leave this marriage and I don't know how consensual it actually was because it was a marriage brought with a power and control but. Um, he said, if you leave me, I'm going to WhatsApp these to our whole community and did that. And the thought of anyone's personal pictures, right, being given out to their neighbors, brothers, rabbis, like imagine that. So there's like the use of technology. We consider that a sexual, we consider that a sexual assault um, on some level. It's also a spiritual assault because it really is a sense of your modesty. Um, and, you know, she was from a community that was um, dress very modestly. So, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, I, there's all these things that inch over overlap with each other. So you're, it isn't, it isn't as simple. Yes. I think that in a relationship that's healthy or healthy enough, someone says you shouldn't be friends with that person. And you go back, well, I don't really care what you think. We'll be friends. You don't have to hang out with them. We don't have to be couples friends, but like, I still like her. I'm still hanging out with her. Okay. Like, okay. I'm annoyed at you, but you know, I mean, it's not never that simple, but like in a healthy enough relationship, you manage it that way. Right. Um, right. In a relationship where someone doesn't hold the voice, it isn't like that. Right. There's two, there's one thing that I want to go back, go back to. You said you used the phrase an intentional way of isolating someone. Is there such a thing as someone being abusive by accident? Does it always need to be, is it always intentional? Are there just some so people I'm who are a, really good so, at heart, but can't help? So I'm not a scholar someone? of like the abusive party. There is not a lot of scholarship around the abusive party. You'll probably get calls and emails about that but there is not a ton and there's a whole politics behind that in my opinion is it possible that someone's not intentionally being abusive it's possible that we have unintentional dysfunctional behaviors in relationships i think that we all should admit to that right i mean i think part of the discussion is being real about what it means to be in a relationship but is it intentional um i i don't know that everybody is like strategic like this month i'm going to isolate her from friends and next month it's family and by the time we get married it's going to be da 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 but I think there's an intentionality to um, abusers that are that really, they, yeah, it's a pattern of behaviors, and and they see it. I mean, there's all this discussion, like why do they do it? You know, the the classic literature around it, which is is debatable, and it's I, I, I you know it's not for here, but it's you know it's around patriarchy and men feeling they have um, the entitlement in the relationship. Um, I, I certainly think that exists in some of the relationships. I can't say that's not true. Um, some of it might not be rooted in actual patriarchy or just a sense of entitlement. Some of it might be, may be rooted in a level of mental health issues, substance issues. But we could also say we all know people who struggle with mental health issues and substance issues who are not abusive partners. So when we give that as a reason, it takes away the responsibility from their, their behavior. And it's a very important, you know, certainly everyone deserves healing and everybody deserves treatment and everybody needs the support they need. But um, just because someone was traumatized as a child or just because they are using substance now does not give them a reason to be an abusive partner. Um, it gives them a reason to struggle, maybe, maybe. And it gives us, as a community, we have to have resources for people because nobody should be alone in a struggle. 
But um, when we go into a place where we, ex we, it almost excuses the behaviors. I don't know. And I think that's a very, um, it's a hard balance there, but it's important to recognize. So I do believe that um, there is, you know, different subsets of abusers. Um, there are people who act in a way that's abusive, but it's not really a pattern and they could be accountable for it. And they may need to learn some relationship skills. Um, and the person could, you could still be in a relationship with someone like that. You might not feel the same level of fear or control, um, but then there, there. But when we're talking about intimate partner violence, we're talking about people who are, are they believe that they have, they should have power, control, and behavior in the, the relationship. They do, and they will use all these. I call the toolbox of the abusers. They will use all these different tools um, to to obtain that power and control. And sometimes the ante will go up, and they'll get more abusive. Sometimes it'll be calmer times. Um, you know, there's all this talk about like a cycle of abuse when there's like attention building and incident and the incident doesn't be physical. And then there's a honeymoon where there's like reconciliation. Um, I'd say most of my survivors I worked with never really experienced the honeymoon. I mean, there, I don't think that really always happens, but um, it's not always clear that there's a pattern. Um, right. And I think that also um, the, something that's important to note is that even if let's say theoretically, there is unintentional abuse, that victim still deserves support and still deserves to not be in that relationship and should right. get the help that they need. Right, so like the thing is like, um, I, I don't know if I wanna use the word like unintentional, like listen, in every relationship, there has to be a level of choice, right? In any relationship you have in your life, your marriage, your friendships, I mean, I guess you can't choose to be a child to someone, but there is a level of choice in how you engage with someone and no one should, and maybe this is my opinion coming out, but like no one should feel trapped. And there's always options. And having options in many ways strengthens the relationship because you wake up in the morning saying, I choose to be a partner in this relationship and I choose to do well as being a partner. And maybe today I can't be my 100%, I'm on my A game, but you know, I'm still choosing to be here. And and when we look at this continuum, right, when there's, you know, we as Sean Tassos and as a therapist, we do not tell people what to do. And I wanna say that really clearly. Someone calls our hotline or speaks to our attorneys nobody's going to say oh my gosh you got to get divorced we will never say that that is everybody's self there it is their own determination that decides what they want to do we will certainly help them in safety i've worked with women for decades who have stayed in their relationships and my role there is to be supportive and help them find whatever, as much safety as possible and that that's their choice and i and i don't know that it's the right or wrong one but everybody has the choice so when we go back to that like if there's something going on in a relationship um, people, even if it's coming from a place of a mental health issue, right, and it's not full-fledged domestic violence, the person could either choose to stay in the relationship or not stay in the relationship, but right, exactly what you said, we as a community, and whatever that community is, the larger community, the larger society, needs to have support systems for people, and, you know, when I was doing my research for my dissertation and, and in my work here, I think one of the themes is that, like, we just don't talk about what is, what's real. We just, like, we're, we just don't talk about it, and you know, be it your adjustment to being, you know, a sexual partner to your husband as an orthodox woman, or your experience just adjusting to a kind of a normal or a healthy enough relationship, or what it's like to be in a domestic violence relationship. Like none of us know, right? Like we 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 grow up with this fantasy of what relationships are supposed to be like, whatever our exposures to popular media, Disney films, whatever it is, like we have no real reference to it, right? Unless we come from like I guess a family that really talks about all the ins and outs of relationships. I don't really know families like that, but you know, so we go in pretty blind and 
Um, and we, uh, you know, we feel strongly, I feel strongly, and our agency feels strong that we have to be real about it. Like, and so we do have a division in our agency that does education and awareness. And we, we do a workshop called Shalom Workshop. It's available to any couples, um, any stage in their relationship. They, they could meet with a trainer, it's not a therapist, to talk about like just basic skills, like relationship skills. It's not for domestic violence. It's for just any of us who need to learn how to have a good fight, right? Because like when you first have your first fight with a partner, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what just happened? But like people fight, but people don't talk about fighting, right? Right. right. And, <laughs> now, and if the fight is scary and you feel afraid and you're, one of my colleagues said like, if you're fighting and you're ducking because you think you're going to get hurt, that's in a different range, but like, right? Like that's a different range. But when you're with your partner, wherever that commitment to partner, I'm not even defining as marriage, whatever your relationship is, right? Right. Like you know how to fight, right? right? And we don't talk about the fact that like everybody fights on some level, everybody disagrees and like, there is an adjustment, um, you know, like it's just, I always, I, I think about it as that we all have our template, right? In our head of what a relationship looks like because we grow up, right? There's a social learning theory. We grow up looking at a relationship, whatever that relationship is. And we take what we like, we don't take what we, we take, we don't take what we don't like, whatever. we create a template in our head. And then our partner um, has the same experience. And then we try to merge them and they don't always fit. Right. I guess like in the world yeah. of fashion, the patterns aren't the same, whatever. They don't, right. Again, those seams have to line up. Those seams don't have to line up. Right. And then how do you make those adjustments? And sometimes some things you can't adjust and you kind of live incongruent and that's okay. If you accept it, like it's, there's not, there's no, there's no, you don't get marks for being perfect, but like, you know, we have to be real. So I think the more we could be real about things, the more people could say, okay, this, and then, and then we move into like, this feels uncomfortable. I'm on, un, I feel unsafe. Okay, I could talk to someone about this. I have friends I could talk to about this. I know I, I could call. Oh, wow, our community, you know, has, and, and I'm only talking about the Jewish community, the, our country really has a developed um, provider system, like a service system, and let us let me get access to it. And that doesn't mean I have to do what they say I need to do, but I have the space, I have the right to explore what I want to do um, and, and obtain safety however I think it should be defined. So. I yeah, yeah, lot, it's but... all, all of that is, is so important. Um, the you keep talking about this continuum, and you're using yeah. the phrase a healthy enough relationship. And I heard you one time throw it out there's health there, there are healthy relationships, there are relationships that are healthy enough, there are those that are high conflict and those that are abusive. So what I, um, if you could, let's take one issue, let's take financial abuse, because I think that's a little bit easier to see sometimes. Um, what would what would you know, what would a financial relationship look like in each of those relationships in a healthy relationship? a healthy enough one, a high conflict one, and an abuse. It's a good question. I think it's a really good question. Um, so I, people call it healthy, high conflict slash dysfunctional and high conflict uh, and abusive. I call it healthy enough. I always put the parentheses because I want to get away from the fairy tales of marriage, but it's really healthy. So in a healthy relationship with financial, um, I would say it's, it's like you both have a voice. Now, it doesn't mean that we have like we're egalitarian how we deal with things because that's a choice, right? So in my, my small self-disclosure, I'm not great with our, our like investments. I just, it's just not my head, right? My husband has to be good about that stuff, but I know all the passwords. I have access to all the information, right? Not, you know, like it isn't being withheld. It's just like, I, he's better than that. I'm really much better at figuring out all the educational choices for our children. He has no head for it. Right. So I'm the social worker. Like I have, you know, like, so, so, you know, so we're talking about like, we, we work on each other's strengths. Right. And we have access but, but there isn't withholding of information. And if there was something that made me concerned or someone concerned to get a, you know, I would be able to say like, well, why would you do that? Or is that the best thing to do? Or should we do it differently? And I'm not afraid of any consequence. Now, again, the high conflict or, or dysfunctional around that, 
I would imagine that looks like if you put me on the spot here is that either the person has the person would fight about it a lot. They like one person is withholding information, but it isn't like abusive where you have no information and you have no voice and they wouldn't be afraid. So you're kind of moving along that that part. And then when you get to financial abuse in a abusive relationship, it looks like the things that I've talked about is like we've seen people where the the abused party, the victim in this the situation, didn't have access to their own paycheck. Right. So the paycheck is direct deposit into the abusive partner's um, of, um, check, checking account. So they had no access where they were on a, a budget and allowance that was so strict that it didn't allow them to buy personal products. And it wasn't because of the, the actual financial situation in the family. It was because that's what the abusive party, party, party decided. Right. So so, you know, they would come back and they would bring um, the receipts and, and try to, they had to show receipts for everything, but not in a way of we are on a budget together let's look at our receipts and kind of figure out what's going on with our money right so you have to think about the discussion so i guess the middle one is a little harder for me to find um and i'm struggling with this because how you know if if you feel like you have voice or if you feel you have limited voice um but you're not afraid that's kind of where that comes in it's all about like fear and power um but with the financial abuse in in a relationship that is is domestic violence where there is the, that part of the continuum um there, you know, we've had people, so I worked at an agency that had a food, a food um, bank there, and we've had people whose, whose abusive partner had, you know, six-figure jobs, they were living in large homes, there was no financial issue there, but they didn't have access to money for food for their children, I mean, right, so there we're talking about, that's something, you know, it's very extreme, um, and it demoralizes someone, right, um, or not allowing someone to work, not a decision of like, oh, we have children now, and even though you have a career, it makes sense for you as a joint decision, um, makes sense for you to be a stay-at-home parent because that's a value of ours or it makes sense. It's like you can't go back to work and you're going to now be um, dependent on me completely. You won't have your own identity. So is that clarifying? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me because I think that, well, first of all, I think that if we define the, you know, the A-plus behavior and the F behavior and recognizing that things that fall in the middle fall in the middle, um, yes that helps. But also, I think that when we think about, you know, like you said, there are these little steps that lead to things. And taking the, you know, knowing what those little steps are to recognize those little steps that leads to things, that's really important. There are all these little steps that lead to someone being in an abusive relationship. And I want to talk about those little steps. I want to talk about, you know, what are the things yes. that we need to look out for. Um, but before we do that, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes you've worked with people who have chosen to stay in relationships that that you would consider abusive, that were abusive. Um, that they know. would define as abusive. Like they, yeah, okay, they would so that, oh, talk me through that. Why? In, it's somebody... so hard, right? So this is the question I always get. So you'll go from this place of like, let's define domestic violence, and we all have this broader understanding. And, and I'm grateful for this conversation because I think we have to have this broader conversation because people still think it's always physical and sexual assault, which we didn't even get to with sexual assault, which can happen in a partnership. And then the next question we all say is, so why doesn't she or he leave? Like, who would want to live that way, right? And I always pose back, well, what are the barriers to that person getting help? Because when we say, why doesn't she or he leave, we make it the responsibility of the survivor slash victim, people like to use different words, to like make the change where, you know, the bigger discussion is why do they behave this way and what can we do? But the other discussion is what gets in the way? What gets in the way of someone getting the help they need to, you know, what, what are the barriers? And that's when we get into a really like, like, you know, there's the universal barriers of like the extreme shame where in the Orthodox community, we use the word Shonda, but I don't even know that we use it anymore. We're talking about the financial barriers, imagining, right? If you're in a marriage, if it's a marriage and there's children, imagining um, trying to pull this off 
without having access to maybe both incomes, having to think about the systems you have to enter, right? You know, you're leaving a relationship or a marriage in particular, you're entering like the legal system. And if you're from the Jewish community, you're entering the rabbinical court system, which, you know, so you're, you're, you're balancing both. If there's an incident of domestic violence and there's police, you have a third court system, right? There's the criminal court system. So, you know, you think about all the different barriers. We talk about, um, um, just the fear, right? Like sometimes the monster we know, right? Isn't there a phrase like the monster we know? You yeah, know, so yeah. like the unknown, right? And if you're talking about um, some women, um, and I'll talk about women, some people have only known themselves as living in their parents' home or their husband's home, right? So they've never had the experience, right? So I think about, and then you talk about particular, some of the cultural things, like I think about this woman I worked with, she had left her husband um, in our in our journey together, but she she couldn't imagine she had six children and she couldn't imagine what a friday night shabbat dinner would be like without someone to say kiddush saying a blessing over the wine right and it's traditionally done by the father and she couldn't imagine like that was one of the biggest and i i think that's so clear she's like but what will happen friday night and i said well what do you mean and i'm from this community i'm like what do you mean you'll, you'll have kiddush right you'll have the wine you'll have your challah and she's like yeah, but who will say kiddush and i'm i look at her i'm like i'm not your rabbi but I believe you're allowed to say Kiddush for you and your family. I'm not and a rabbi was, either, but you are, by you the way. You are, right. <laughs> and, and I said, you what? Chabal is a bigger right. issue, but you can totally right. do Kiddush. Right, you can totally do Kiddush. But no, but but but, but let's, let's go back to the point. Like, she couldn't imagine a life, right, without this type of structure and us really discussing, like, what the bigger issue is, or the bigger, like, the bigger experience of like what would it mean to restructure my life within a community that's traditional right that that is, has a conventional um two-parent family and even though she could admit that she was almost killed this was one of the more extreme situations she the physical violence in this situation was very extreme and for her to, to recognize that realize that she needs to leave for her own physical safety but, but what will she be able to provide? And eventually, you know, we, we would we would laugh about the kiddish issue because she learned how to say kiddish for her family. But when her kids eventually would be going to her ex-husband for every other week for Shabbat, because kids should have access to safe parents and both, yeah, both all safe parents. So when that was became safe, she would never say kiddish for herself because she was only doing it for the kids. For her, it still didn't sit well, right? So how do we manage that? So, you know, there are a lot of factors. There's there's financial factors, there's the fear factors, there's, I mean, a lot of immigration concerns, which is not all real, but exists in every single community, Jewish, general community, where, um, you know, it was that your immigration status was dependent on your, your spouses if you were not from here. And how do you, what's the legal remedy to that? And there are legal remedies, but it's, if you, it's, it's if, if you, um, if, how does that work? Is it possible if you, you know, if you so can you show the- I'm not the lawyer, you can- I'm not a lawyer, but it used right. to be that let's say you were married, you were a legal permanent resident or someone not from the United States, and you were married to a permanent a permanent resident or American citizen, they petition for your green card and you get your immigration through your spouse, right? right? So if you get divorced or that person refuses to to sign off on it, then you lose your immigration status. But what if you if you already have the green card, then you have the green well, card. Then it's right? not that's not a problem. Right. That's not a problem. But right, but they changed the law. Like if you look at the social policy part of it, right? They changed the law that they, you had, if you could prove if you could prove that you were a victim of domestic violence from your from your married spouse, right? Then then you could self petition. So there are a lot of like little factors. And there's just like what happens to your kids? What's the practical things? You still and there's denial. There's also something that people don't love talking about. There's love. Mm, talk about that. There's love. There, right? People don't want to say that. Like, if all that we just discussed the last 25 minutes, he's all this behavior. How do you still love the person? And you do because emotions are not rational, right? And you do not stand at an altar. You do not sit under a chup, stand underneath a chuppah. 
you do not engage in that level of commitment or relationship in that, without feeling love. And the end of a marriage is a huge loss, even if the marriage was unsafe. And part of that, you know, you might have had children with this person, and that is, you know, there's a lot of joy in having these children, but it's really complicated, right? Because you're having these children with someone who's abusive. So, you know, to give space for people to hold both. I could be afraid of this person, hate this person, be scared of this person. At the same time, there's still love. I still have empathy. I know, I know he grew up with a lot, and I still feel for him, but it's still not safe. And, you know, as therapists, when we do clinical work and I do clinical supervision, we talk about just giving space for it, like not letting it be black and white, because when you're black and white with a person, right, you're almost making them choose a side and you want them to be able to explore their whole experience um, and then mourn it, right? If they're choosing to leave, if they're in a place they have to, they're choosing to or have to leave this relationship, like mourn it. Don't, don't, don't celebrate before they're willing to celebrate it. They might be really sad still, right? Um, so there's all these different factors. And then when you get into the particulars of, of more insular or faith-based communities, and I speak most in the Jewish community, and you just look at um, some of the other factors that we deal with. So we talk about the six S's of my head. We talk about the shame or the Shonda. We talk about the shidduch system, the matchmaking system, that there are still communities within our community that um, it's easier to marry off. And I say that, you know, your child, if you have, you know, it's not a divorced home. And I've worked with Upteen and my colleagues have of women who come forward after they've married off their last child, um, because they feel like it would be such, um, it would be so hard for their children. And um, if to get married to the right person um, or be marketable in a system if they're divorced. So there's the shit up system. Um, there's just the, the social system that we have, right? We talk about the kiddish, but we talk about, and you know, for those who are familiar with the Orthodox synagogues is men and women sit separate. And um, what do you do if you have, you have sons? Like what- Who are they gonna do? sit with? Who are they gonna sit with? And we could kind of say, oh, you'll find someone in the neighborhood or whatever, but that's a really hard thing to do. It yeah. really is. And then you just think about how do we, how do we as a community build in um, support for something like that? Like that, not allowing that to be the barriers. Um, there's the status, right? So um, there's the status of being married, um, which is true and real and we have to just acknowledge, um, particularly in the Jewish communities, we talk about girls as how old they are. Um, if they're unmarried, right? We use Biggest the word pet peeve. I, I, I just don't get it. Like, how do we call, you know, people past 18 girls? I got but... married at 22. I am currently 26. And people will call me Mrs. Itzkowitz, a married right. lady. And by the way, Mrs. Itzkowitz is my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> and, um, and there are women in their 40s who are accomplished with huge careers that are single girls. I'm like, what is that? Right, but right? Like, it, who wants to marry a girl? Like, also, no, like, you exactly. Like, I never just, like, I have a good girl for you. You're like, you don't want to marry a girl. Like, that's, <laughs> but, uh, with the, yes. But, like, when we use language like that, right, and we, we, we really um, privilege the status of marriage, imagine not being married, you know, like, and then knowing that about the community and what is your place and, and just because someone's needing to leave a marriage um, doesn't mean that they should feel they have to leave their community. If they choose to leave their community, that's their choice also. But like, but why is it that people feel like they don't, they don't have a place? How do we think about just having in our, our regular Jewish lives, right? Our synagogue lives, our communal lives, space for everyone. So, you know, we have Saturday nights and a lot of the shoals, they have um, something called father-son learning, right? And there's this whole tradition about that. Well, it, it, there's no father, right? So if we would just rename it adult child, and a lot of places do do that, or parent child, then doesn't that allow um, 
allow for everybody to feel like a participate? Or do we make sure that we, it, these are little things, but like memberships at synagogues, are they priced differently for single parents versus, you know, like how do we make it possible? Like it just, so yes, yeah, so those are ones, so these are all these barriers, right? Like just imagining life with, with in a different way, um, fear, not knowing. And then there's just the other barriers of knowing, and I'm gonna say this very strongly, is that the homicides related to domestic violence happen and when someone's ready to leave on the three months um, after leaving. That is what all literature will say. That is the most dangerous time. That's when the ante goes up, there's less control of the abuser. And that's when we see, when you read in the newspapers of these horrific homicides, that's when it happens. And people who may have not been physically as physically abusive in the marriage, that's when it goes up and, it, it, and it's real. And let me tell you, the survivors living in this know that. They read the newspaper too, the, the, and, and they're afraid. And, um, that is where I would I would strongly suggest you know we, we have we'll all have different roles and we need to be in a community that provides you know support and space for everybody in the community. We need to be friends who know how to be supportive to one another. And then there's professionals who are trained who to deal with the, the fatality risks. And um, and that's not something done on one hotline call. That's really meeting with experts throughout the community at different agencies who can help someone deal with that because the fatality risk is real. I, I'm not saying it happens every day. It happens every single day, and I don't have the number in front of me in the general community, but it does happen. And, you know, and and that's and we can't we can't um, dismiss that fear when someone talks about it. Like they may truly be afraid that they they would be hurt. Um, and then there's children. Like there is still this feeling that children should have both parents in the home, or what will happen to my children? Or well, he says I'll never get them. He says he's going to win in court. Um, or she says he's gonna win. She's gonna win in court, and I'll never have access. All which you know, like, is is not typically true. I mean, usually both parents have access to children on some level, um, but you know that all has to be. It's very case specific. Um, so yes, yeah, so we talk about barriers, or why doesn't she just leave? Um, it's it's never not so simple. simple. It's not. There you go. That's the answer. Let's go, yeah. let's go back. It's just not simple. It's less simple. It's more simple if people get the support early on. And as someone who's been in the field for a while now, I'll tell you that 20 years ago, all vast majority of my patients were my mother's age and older, right? Now I have gotten older, but now most of the people I've dealt with the last five or six years have been people much younger than me, like in their 20s and early 30s, right? And that speaks to the strength of the community, right? Where that we are talking about it more. I would never say enough, but more. And people are coming out earlier. And the idea of leaving a relationship with zero, one or two children versus five, six, seven, eight children, which is what we're, you know, which is in the community that we serve is often the reality, is a whole different game, right? The, reality, the idea of untangling a marriage before children or early marriage is very different than 30 years in, right? They're just different, it's just a different experience. So, so people come out who are able to go, you know, to, to pursue help earlier, certainly um, it's simpler. And even if they choose not to leave, They'll get more support, right? So even if they choose to stay in a relationship or it's not the right time for them to leave, they won't, they like, we could help with the trauma around it. We could get, make sure that there's other services in place so they aren't absolutely isolated with it. If you choose to remain married for the rest of your life or for another 10 or 15 years, those are 10 or 15 years that you're not in that marriage by yourself. You're there with that's support. Right. I love how you said that. That's fantastic. Yeah, you're not by yourself. That's... And, and, and that's okay, right? That's, we could all, that's okay. But like, know that you're not alone. You know, even if it means that you need to call a hotline once a week to tell your story and be believed, you're not alone. You know, get you know a therapist. You know, it, it, whatever it is, but know that you're just you're not alone, and um, you shouldn't be. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you used the word believed, um, because I think that also in the wider in the wider discourse in the wider world, um, there's this notion of you know, and and I 
I would definitely agree with it. You know, if somebody comes forward and tells you that they've been in an abusive situation, whether that's a, a sexual assault or, or domestic violence situation, whatever it is, you believe them. And, you know, hashtag believe all women and all of that. And I know that there are some people who definitely have major problems with, um, with that. Um, what, you know, how often does it happen? that let's say oh, let's use for should I google it for us right now um please I how often this, does it happen that somebody actually just makes this up like when somebody comes to me when somebody Very comes to me and says and says you know my husband has been hitting me let's use the most extreme example how how likely is it that they are lying you're, you're I've shaking your head now it. I'm shaking my head you guys don't get to see me I've never I've never seen it as a lie um you know it becomes I know that there's all this idea of like false accusations particularly on sexual assault um certainly like it does exist i think the percentages someone's gonna write in um uh what's the percentage i recently had to look it up it's a very very low percentage of actual false allegations um what why would someone do that let's just think about it like why would someone come and share something so intimate with you um you know it just isn't you know and, and then i'd say to you i mean and to anyone that's not our job right it's not our job we are not the police we are not the child you know, welfare system. Even as a social worker, that's not who employs me. My job is to believe. As a friend, you're there to validate. You're not there to, you're not there to say, what did you say? What did she say? You're there to say, thank you for coming to her. I feel, I, you know, I feel privileged and honored that you feel you can share this with me. I'm here for you. What can I do to help you? Right? You're just, you're just very neutral. You're not going to get into a place of, oh, he's such a jerk, you know, or she's terrible. But that doesn't help either, right? Because you, it doesn't. Um, but so, so to just remember our role, my role as a social worker, your role as a friend, as a community member is not to say who's in the right. You don't have to make that choice, right? Your choice, your choice is to be someone that could be a anchor and someone who could be a, a true friend or not to. Um, when we get into a place where we start like questioning, like how did that happen? It's very natural, right? It's very natural. It's like, well, what happened before that? Like, why would he do that? Then you automatically, without realizing it, are victim blaming. But also um, what happens is, is that people disclose and then they retract and they disclose and they retract and they, you know, because it is, it is so fearful to share this with people. And so if, if I come to you and I say, my husband did X, Y, and Z, and you say, oh my God, he's such a jerk. How can you possibly live with him? Without realizing it, you're giving your opinion, right? <laughs> and you're, you're basically telling them what they should be doing. And then when they choose to stay, you're no longer a safe person. Right. Because they, you know, so it's helping you, you when you choose to say you've already told them, you know, someone comes to you, says my husband hit yeah. you and you said you need to leave. And then they don't leave. Then the next right. time when he hits them, it's they don't want to. Right. They feel like you're going to say to them, like, I already I told, told you, you leave so. Them. I told you so. Right? Even though you probably wouldn't because you're a good person and you would never say that to someone. But right. that's what they think. So here's one less person they could confide in one less person. So we right as friends. Are, are here to say, like, like, what can I do to be helpful? You don't deserve that. That's an important phrase. No one deserves that. You are not alone. And that's where the Rolodex comes in. Give them names of local agencies. Give them strong task forces hotline. You know, know that they are not alone. You're not the only person that goes through this. Like, when we go into, to a lot of souls will have us come in, and it's so beautiful, right? It's, like, so beautiful to go into a synagogue and have a discussion with 5, 10, 50, 100 people, whoever comes. And I'm always happy. My staff sometimes laugh. I'm like, if we get 10 people in the room, that's fine. They're ambassadors. But the, the conversation, even beyond the calendar of a shul or a Jewish community center or wherever your form would be, makes, it, makes a statement to those struggling, right? Saying, like, we see you. We right. see you. We know it exists, right? Listening to a podcast. I mean, not to be like, but like listening to a podcast or sending this out to a friend and saying, this exists. How interesting. How I didn't understand this all. Let's those people know that, like, 
you're you're part of us. Like you're not the other. Um, so. You know, so we don't have to, when it comes down to false allegations, is it true, is it not true? There are people who have to figure that out, right? Judges have to figure that out, juries have to figure that out, child welfare, police sometimes have to figure that out. That's not my job, that's not your job. You know, we're here to believe. Um, right. And that's such a great way of phrasing it. It's not, it's not your job. It's not, that's not, you know, that's not your job. You know, I'm always grateful it's not my job. When someone says <laughs> it, I'm like, I don't want that job. Yeah, it's, a, less, it. like, it's a lot less fun. I, I, I don't think I'd be impactful in that way, right? Like, I don't want to right. sit there figuring that out. Like, that's, a, that's not who I am, and that's not how I could help. So, so you know, and that's okay. Um, and your job, your role is just as important, right? right. So sure what someone... is your role? Somebody comes to you and says, I'm in, I think I'm in an abusive relationship. What do I do? What do you do? Okay, so what, what we just said, I believe you. I'm here for you. What, would you, what do you want to tell me about it? Open-ended, right? Open-ended and validating. What do you want to tell me about that? How can I be helpful to you? Right? I I I could um I, I could give this I could I could send you some links. I wrote something like the the eight ways over Hanukkah, right? The eight different ways of of um of bringing this out in awareness, bringing light unto dark. You know, awareness act awareness programs at your local communities, but like being the shamish, being the the leader in it, right? So you you don't have to you you're spreading light. So so the role of I say it again is important to say them you're not the only person. I've heard of an agency. You know, there are agencies in all these particular communities. There's one for the Jewish community. There's one for the Asian community. There's one for the Arab. It exists everywhere. We acknowledge, right, that this exists. You're not here alone. How can I be helpful? What can I do for you? Um, nobody deserves that. No one deserves that. That's such, a, you know, that's such um, a great line. Don't ever hesitate, right? No one deserves that. The word deserve is so powerful in many ways, right? Like, what do we deserve? Nobody deserves to feel unsafe. No one. We should all feel, we all should feel safe at home. Right. That's not that's not too high of a bar. We don't all deserve X, Y, and Z, whatever that we all deserve to feel safe. So just really keep an open stance, an open stance. How can I, I I'm you know, I don't you can even if you're being real, I'm not sure exactly to help you, but can I find someone with you that could help you more? I'll be there with you. Let me help you make that phone call. Right. You know, and then when it gets to the more dangerous things, I would say when there's actual safety planning and someone needs that, then I would suggest that that you as a friend call us, call us, call Safe Horizons call somewhere that could help you as a friend. Look it up online. We have a lot of information on our website. Um, there, There's great resources now. Like if you're really in a situation where someone says, I need to run to your house, um, you know, how do, how do you do that in a way that's safe for everybody? Um, because we, we need people, we need friends to be able to be available to people. We want everyone to remain safe. So that, that at that point, I would say, make sure that even if, if the person who's coming to you isn't yet comfortable going to professional, you could call a professional. Most family violence programs are free. Um, you know, it's not, it's not full-time, it's not long-term therapy. It's a, a public social service. So, um, you know, to access that. And when you call our hotline, even as a friend, you do not need to share. We do not ask your name. We do not ask you any identifying information. We may ask like where you're from so we can help you get to a local service, um, but you could use Brooklyn. You don't have to say I'm from, you know, East Flatbush, wherever you're from, you know? So, um, so I, but yes, so yeah, it's it's. I think that you know this. You just brought up this whole idea of safety planning, and it's yeah. You uh, you know one if someone comes to you with that escape plan, you know to know that you know that's a point when really professionals need to be engaged is such a is such a powerful thing. You mentioned that everyone deserves to be able to feel safe at home, um, and we have all spent much more time at home than we ever really wanted to. Yes, um, over the past <laughs> you know fifteen months or so. Um, how has the current pandemic affected your work? 
Oh, wow. Um, so we've been calling it the pandemic within the pandemic or the shadow pandemic as the increase in of family violence overall. And just to take a second, um, you know, you think about being trapped at home with someone who's abusive that hurts you. And, and maybe the way that person stays safe is having a job or interacting with other people. And then you think about the children, which is not our specialty or agency, but certainly overlaps is children um, are often safest at school, right? Both they get their food there, but they're, they're checked in on and for months on end, right? Months on end, there's no other adults in their lives now frightening us. So I'll say the, the first two months of the pandemic, our hotline was eerily quiet. It was frightening to us frightening. And that was the national, um, what was happening nationally. We were in touch with many hotlines throughout the country, um, general hotlines, specific hotlines, um, culturally specific hotlines. And we were all very frightened. At the same time, the police reports were going up. So it seemed that people couldn't access hotlines because that was too much, like the person's in the next room. But when there was an incident, they, they were, the police were involved. So that was an interesting just um, phenomenon for us. Um, and then the calls we were getting during that time were much more severe. They were much more physically abusive um, and a lot more very significant safety planning, police involvement. And then I'd say around May, June, July last year, um, our hotline went on an 80% increase. Like we had so many more calls. Um, I think people had a little bit more freedom to call and talk and, and they were finally coming out with it. And we also in August launched our text chat line, which obviously increased our traffic. At this point, we're around 30% up than we've had been the last two years. Um, so there's... There's certainly more reporting of it. We never know in the domestic violence world what that means because um, is, is more phone calls successful, meaning more people are accessing help or is more phone calls not, means that more people are being hurt. You know, I, I still believe that more phone calls is, means, is a good thing. It means people know that they could get the help. Um, you know, I, don't, I think having no phone calls um, it just means people are, are too trapped to get the help they need. Um, I don't think we're there. I, I pray for a time where no phone calls means that people are all safe. I, that's just not what's true. So COVID has really changed the number. I'll say as an agency, um, our work is primarily remote because we're a hotline. Um, people call in, we were able to very easily, like March, I think I looked it up March 11th last year, it was like the day after all of us kind of went into to social, you know, social distancing. We moved everything completely remote. We retrained everyone around safety planning during quarantine. Our legal department, which I didn't touch on yet, we have um, two attorneys that go into court and into Jewish based in to deal with all the divorce issues to the end. Um, they, the court shut down, so they do everything remote. And our education department actually flourished because people are on Zoom. So we were able to do so many more webinars and so many more resources and, and go into so many more schools um, because of access. So we reached more people this year. Um, and we redid our, our website during this time because we felt that people who can't call but need resources could read about it. So you go on our website, there's even more to interact with. And every webinar that we give, we put on our, um, on our website and every podcast we're on so people can constantly be able to get more information and the safety of wherever they are. Um, you know, they have to make sure they're safe, digital, I said this before, but using digital mechanisms can either be very safe or can be dangerous. So people have to really figure that out. We have information about that as well. Um, so yeah, COVID has been interesting. Um, I think we're all exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> That's the understatement of the century. I think it was <laughs> you mentioned safe digital mechanisms. And I just want to yeah. say for, um, for the benefit of everybody listening, every single internet browser that you're going to use has what's called a privacy mode. Um, uh, Google Chrome calls it an incognito mode. And when mm -hmm. you're in this mode, it does not track what it is that you're doing. And anybody looking at your internet search history would not see what it is that you're doing. So let's say, for example, you wanted to look up Shalom Task Force website, and you believe for whatever 
reason that your internet use is being monitored, start looking up some recipes, you know, Google some recipes, look up some chicken or whatever it is. And then when you already have the browser open, if you go to the top left um, where it says file, then right in that, you know, very basic menu, there's new win, there's new tab, new window, and underneath that, it's new incognito window. And when you have that incognito window open, it's not tracking what you're doing and nobody else can see um, what it is that you're doing unless they are literally standing over your shoulder. They can't see it in your search history. Um, and, and most domestic violence, and ours is the same way, most domestic violence hot, um, agencies' websites have an exit button right there. So if you're on it already, and someone walks by, you don't want them to see it, you press exit, it'll take you to, I think our goes to weather.com, um, but most of them, and it, it, that way it's also, we try to keep it as safe as possible. But, you know, the risk of using digital is that you have to just know if the person has access to your phone, the person has access, if you're on iMessages and it goes to every iPad in the house and you're you're texting with someone, just be, be aware of it, um, which is why we have both, both options, phone calls, you can call or you could use those other services. We have WhatsApp, um, so um, just to be aware that people are doing that from a place of safety and consent. Um. Yes, yes, for sure. The, um, the, I, I want to go, I want to zoom out even farther. Um, my first experience with Shalom Task Force was actually in high school. Um, and, and a lovely woman came to school and we got to miss a period or two and we had a workshop and it was great. And she told us about red flags and relationships. Um, and I'd love for you to uh, take us through what some of those red flags are. What are some things that I can look out for um, in a relationship that's maybe brand new, that's maybe more developed? What are the, mm -hmm. what are, you know, we've been talking about these little steps that lead to full-fledged abuse. What do those look like? How can I protect myself? What do I need to be aware of? I love that. That's what you, that, you, that was your first exposure to us. Um, and we get calls on our hotline from, from mostly young women, but some young men, we go into boys' schools too, saying, I'm in a relationship, I'm starting a relationship, something doesn't feel right. I remember something said, someone said to me five, seven, eight years ago in my high school class or my gap year program in Israel. And I just want to talk to someone. And we love that, right? We like, we love that. So some of the red flags we talk about are, and I don't know what you remember, is, you know, disrespect within the relationship, dishonesty, um, putting someone down, you know, um, a temper, right? Um, if you feel fearful, you, you feel like you can't have a discussion or you can't disagree about anything. Like, how do you make decisions? And, you know, you're planning a wedding together and it's all about what he or she wants. And you can't even voice that, like, no, you want your uncle to have a, a blessing under the chuppah. And, how do we figure this out together? Or, or you always really wanted a certain song, you know, and like, like, do you not have a space? I, I remember um, a red flag, a, a, a client of mine shared, I mean, obviously it was in retrospect, but what she shared with me was, you know, she, for her birthday, when they were engaged, he brought her a large boom box. Those of you who don't know what that is. Um, what year was it? It's this? like a large, you know what boom boxes? I know um, what a boom a, box like, is, but what year did this happen? Oh, this is a long time ago. This woman okay. was in a 25-year marriage, and she said, like, one of the biggest red flags, but she didn't know what to do with it, was that he bought a boom box because, and boom box is something that plays records and tapes, you know, music. It's like a CD player? Yeah, it's a stereo yeah. system, right? This happened so, a very long time ago, everybody. Very long time ago, right? <laughs> so I probably, I probably was with, with, with this patient with mine 10 years ago, and she was in a 25-year marriage. So it was going back 35 years. So, um, and she described to me so vividly, she goes, she goes, I remember saying like, he knows I don't want that. I don't care for music. He wanted a boom box. He wasn't responding to my needs at all. And she's like, it was like a red flag to me. Now when we talk about red flags, like red flags doesn't mean that something happens and you say, okay, I'm leaving that, you know, red flags to me is like, this is where we get curious. Like this is where we have to figure this out. Right. So we go back to like the jealousy, like 
where the possessiveness, like where did that, where does it come from? The control. And then what, like, what, like, what do you do with that information? Well, what we tell people to do is we call it the uh-oh feeling. I don't know if that was called when you were in high school, but it's like, do you get this stuff, like this thing is like, something doesn't feel right. Let's not ignore that. That doesn't mean I make a decision only based on that. It means, uh-oh, let me explore this. Let me be curious about what is going on here, how it's impacting our relationship, and if, if this is still comfortable for me. And then, and then move forward to that. Does that mean you spend, you find people, we say, talk about who in your life can you speak to? If it's your, if your parents are so invested in this relationship working because of whatever reasons there are, and we could, you know, multitude of reasons, maybe they're not this, maybe they are great people to talk to, or maybe they are the right people. Is there someone else? Is there a therapist? You know, I always push therapists, but you know, is there a mental health professional? Is there a rabbi? Is there a rabbi's wife? Is there a community member? Is there someone that I could talk this out with um, and, and just be curious of why do I say, uh-oh, when we're talking about the wedding, is it my nerves or is it because I have, I can't say anything or it's all about him. Um, does like, like, you know, is, is, <laughs> you know, like we talk about stalking behaviors. So there's like this, we talk about possessiveness and stalking behaviors. So is it because, um, is he calling me? Cause he like, like, can I say to him, just don't call me. I'm busy right now. Or, or does she always need to know where I am? And I use both genders and, you know, intentionally there, like, you know, is there a possessiveness or control over my life? I remember, um, you know, with back, this is also going back beepers, right? You know, back in the day, beepers, you know, which is like so weird, but I remember, you know, with cell phones, it's even easier, but like, is he tracking me? Like, do I have space for myself? And where is that coming from, right? Like, is it like I'm calling to say goodnight and I just want to say goodnight? Or like, what did you do today? Who did you talk to? And what does that feel like? So to really like, to look out for that, um, like, is, is he or she upset if I'm not available? Like, do I have the right to not be available all the time? Uh, and how do we communicate about that? Um, so, um, you know, we talk about putting someone down, name calling, um, but to watch these things. And I think really learning not to ignore your response to things, you know, that, that if something doesn't feel right, look into it. Um, you know, it, it's much easier and healthier to leave a relationship earlier. It's, it's much, you know, um, if that's what needs to happen, or if it's something that you don't have to leave, but needs to be adjusted and you have to figure out together, then get the intervention early. So it's not something you struggle with long-term. Um, people have, you know, and, and so I, I, is that, you know, those, those are the kind of things we look for. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's also, you know, you don't, the longer that something festers, um, the more ingrained it becomes and the more, you know, there's certain things about a relationship. This is a stupid example. Uh, but I remember when I first got married, someone told me they, um, they said something along the lines of like, if when you're, you know, make sure that he takes out the garbage at the beginning, because if he's, oh, if he's taking out the garbage in the beginning, then taking out the garbage becomes his job. And he's just always the one who right. takes out the garbage. And that just becomes kind of thing. And obviously this is a really stupid example, but. Not a bad idea though. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I recommend it. Um, but also, you know, those things that are, you know, those things that kind of, you know, at the beginning of a relationship, uh, particularly if you're in a situation where your dating period is somewhat shortened and you're starting out, you know, right. if you're if you're going in, you know, kind of what we would think of as a conventional orthodox situation where you were not living together before you were married, you were um, you're you maybe knew each other for a couple of months before you got married. Like there was there was a, a very quickened dating process and then the the beginning of the of the marriage can sometimes be a, an adjustment to each other when you're making those adjustments that's when you want to acknowledge any you know weird niggly feelings that you're having and address them so that in five years from now those don't become 
you know, major issue. Yeah, I mean, that just, it's just, you know, uh, you know, something else that we, we, we didn't touch upon enough. And I, I feel like I should, it's just, you know, in the world of sexual assault and sexual boundaries, right? So we see in relationships and in marriages, um, you know, that, that there's like this, this mantra or this ethos around like you have to be available to your husband and that's kind of your role and that's that's not you you, you have the right to say no you have the right to you know um to express consent um you need to express consent in really in marriages as well and in, in committed relationships um and you know there's there's it's very hard particularly in traditional relationships traditional communities to talk about um of um sexuality just because there's not a lot of previous experience right and so people don't know what's normative and i hate using the word normative sexuality because honestly if people consent anything could be normal but you know how do we how do we negotiate that but if the boundaries are being crossed and people don't have the right to say no or i'm not comfortable or you know i'm willing to try something but if it doesn't feel right i'm not doing this again and i have the right to say no and i'd say even in dating and engagements in the insular and orthodox communities when sexual boundaries are being crossed without consent um, another thing that they real about people are not always um, as strict as people claim to be, but when sexual boundaries are crossed and and um, without consent and they're being pushed, that's also something as a red flag. And even if one time someone is okay with that breach or whatever you want to consider it, and and then later they choose not to, that has to be respected. And when it's not respected, it's problematic. Um, and what we also see is like that could be used as, you know, you you were willing to do X and Y with me. And if you choose to leave this relationship, I'll let everyone know that you were willing to do X and Y. Right. To really. And if those things are happening, um, that's those are really those are big red flags. Right. Like um, so to, to so it comes around to a boundaries, like even in a marriage, people should have boundaries around. You know, people are allowed to be independent individuals. You're not you're not mesh. You're not one person. <laughs> Right, you know, and you're allowed to have independent lives. I, I, I highly recommend having independent lives, however you define it. I think happier marriages is when people have individual interests and they get share. But like, you know, I, I, that's my personal. Um, you know, I've, I've probably witnessed and experienced healthier relationships that way. But, but being allowed to have boundaries, and when those boundaries are being crossed and make need you feel, and behaviors are making you feel uncomfortable. Be really curious about what that is and, and don't ignore it. Just it's don't ignore right. it. Um, and the thing that I also want to um, want to point out is that when you talk about, you know, a, a sexual boundary being crossed for someone, a sexual boundary being crossed could be someone that they're dating, holding their hand. That could absolutely. be a huge and major step. And that might happen. And you might think, well, you know, in, in, in the, in the outside world, you know, in yes. a normal situation, I would hold hands in high school. This would not be a big deal at all. Why should I feel, you know, why, why should I feel like this is a big deal? But if that's not something that you have ever done with anyone of the opposite gender and somebody just, you know, goes out and grabs your hand and says, isn't this lovely? That's a problem. You know, that's right. something. And, and, and if your response is like, yeah, it is lovely. And, you know, I might have some issues with it because it's not how I was raised, but I'm comfortable doing it. You know, I'm not here as the rabbi, then fine. Then that could be, you know, that's negotiated between the two of you. But if he's forceful or she's forceful about certain behaviors, um, be it handholding onto any kind of sexual intimate activity, right? Then that's something not to be ignored because it doesn't really matter what the larger or any, any kind of norm is. It's what your, what your boundaries are. So if your boundaries are X, then X should not be violated um without you know and there needs to be consent around it um and so it's really important to know that and you know it gets complicated particularly in you know religious and faith-based communities all faith-based community because there's a lot of um 
I would say shame and guilt around sexual activity outside of, you know, marriage and outside of, you know, in an Orthodox community, even within marriage in particular times of marriage, but um, to be able to have, and I know I keep on saying this word voice, but if you can't have voice about it and you can't, you know, have the right to say no and that no being respected, that's problematic. Um, right. And how do yeah, we do that? And, but, but it's hard yeah. to have that voice because people aren't comfortable with it. We don't know enough. We don't talk right. about it enough. Exactly. So. <laughs> you might, you might not want to, you know, I'm, I'm using the example of handholding because it, yes. is, it could be, you know, so benign, but the truth is, is that if you would never admit to your mother that you held right. your boyfriend's hand, what exactly are you supposed to do? Um, even if, even if you didn't volunteer to hold that hand, you know, even if that hand was held right. for you, so to speak, um, you know, you, you keep going back using, you know, with your use of pronouns, you know, using, we've kind yeah. of been, um, generally referring to the abuser as a he and to the victim as a she. Um, and we know that that's not always true. True. Um, and I'd love for you to take a moment to speak about what is what are kind of the differences between um, abuse in a partnership when it is the man who is an abuser and the woman who's an abuser? And um, and are there any barriers to men getting help from an abusive relationship? Oh, so I mean, it's very um, it's controversial because the statistics are terrible because abuse, intimate partner violence is all underreported. And so even more underreported by men. Um, I still primarily believe and most literature will say that men, women are the primary victims, though people will yell at me, colleagues of mine will yell at me, but how does it look different? Um, well, very, very simply, right, the physical threat of a man, typically, I mean, there are women who are larger or stronger, but typically, um, just physically, um, men could be more physically abusive and it be more dangerous in that way. So um, that always kind of plays a role because of the threat. But I will tell you that um, women could be physically abusive as well. Um, we've had many calls. I've worked with patients, male patients, whose um, wives, girlfriends have used, you know, I, I think of one who used a frying pan, you know, hitting him with a frying pan. Um, and and then the question to him, people always say to him, like, well, why didn't you hit back? He goes, I'm not going to be a man that hits a woman, right? Like, he's like... <laughs> See, it's so funny that you say that's a question because my first reaction to hearing was, you know, she hit him with a frying pan. My first, my literal, in my head, it was, well, what did, you know, what was happening before that? Nobody just right. Puts so a then, then there's the, then there's the bias, right? So then there's 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 the bias there, right? Where we, we all struggle with it and we're very real about it is that when a male victim calls about a female abuser, we we often will say, um, we'll say, well, she must be mentally ill, or like you know, where when it's an abusive man, we'll say oh, he's really abusive. And we have to get rid of that bias because women could be abusive and men could be abusive and they both could have mental illness and, and they both have to be responsible for their behavior. So some of the barriers for men is just how absolutely emasculating it is to call and to admit that this is happening. Um, you know, it's hard for anyone to admit. I would say um, that's a huge barrier. It's a barrier when um, social service agencies don't really know how to respond to men. I'd say that's gotten better, but it's certainly not perfect. We do a lot of discussion around that at our agency um, about how to respond to a male caller. Uh, there's actually a letter written in the Mishpacha about us recently from a male victim saying that he felt like he was responding to well, but there's certainly, um, you know, there's like the, the, the visceral reaction is like, really? Do you, like, do we believe it right away? And we have to change that. We have to believe anybody who comes forward who's being hurt, we have to believe them. Again, it's not our role to, to judge that. So um, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I mean, I think that we have to, you know, the larger discussion of like gender roles in our community or gender roles in the world and what men are expected to be in a relationship. And when it doesn't happen that way, what, what, it, what they experience. So um, um, I don't, you know, it's certainly hard. We are here for everyone, anyone who calls, um, you know, larger than, you know, we work with, with victims from, from in any type of relationship, um, 
heterosexual, um, same-sex relationships, anyone who calls, we will respond to with um, validation and with help. Um, so no one should feel they, they have to look a certain way to be assisted. Um, yeah, that's that's for sure. I think that, you know, for me personally, a lot of the hesitation and i'll and i'll admit fully it is harder for me to believe a man than it is for me to believe a woman um, it's, you know to admit it is it's fine right it puts it out there then you deal with it right and i think right also, like what we don't admit it is why we like you know we think we're so neutral about things it doesn't allow us to really engage in it right and i think that also you know for me a lot of that hesitation comes from you know especially the you know the especially, you know, with the Aguna situation that's been getting so much airtime recently, a lot of times the men who are the abusers in that situation will claim some kind of abuse on, on the woman's side. They'll say something like she's keeping her kids, my kids for me, or, um, or something like that. Um, And, and it makes it harder, you know, when, when the bad guys use that as an excuse for their own bad behavior, it makes it harder to believe the good guys. Well, yeah. And also let's just dissect that for a second. Like, She's withholding the, the children, which is probably not true. So you should act abusive? Like that, like, like, that, right? Like, 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 okay, yeah, so right. my stance is, I'll publicly say it, you give a get when the get is requested. I, I, it shouldn't be used as abuse. 99% of the women who I've worked with, who a get is something that they want, whatever part of the community they're in, fear not getting the get. That does not mean they become a goon out. They Eventually, most of them are not. But the fear informs their decisions throughout the process. It sits there. It, it hovers. And it is it is a vehicle of abuse. It just is. And um, to not admit, you know, and, and, and most men in divorces give gets, right? Most people do not abuse it. But the people who do and the fact that it's possible for it to happen, the threat of it, it just looms large. And, and it, it's inexcusable. And... And men in our community need to help us with that, right? They need to help just own that because there is an inherent privilege and power in that halacha and that Jewish law. And it's, it's, it, it just sits there. And, and when we don't, right, if we don't admit what it does and how it, how it plays out, then we're not really being real about the situation. But, you know, if we take that situation, she's withholding the children. And so I'm going to be abusive. So, you know, she called me a bad name, so I'm going to hit her. No, we don't behave that way. We just don't. We are all responsible for our own behavior. We need to do the right thing by other people, right? We are not, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But that's just that's you know that's not how we that's not how we teach our children to play on the playground, right? We, that's not how we, we interact in our personal lives. It's not it's it, you know and and you know and the issues and I know that you're going to speak to people who are much more in in the the get world though it's something that we deal with daily. But people who are involved in the legal world around that and, and the advocacy, the issue of, of withholding a get is just is being is really just using it as a vehicle of abuse, and it's 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 a perversion of of Judaism. It, it, it's simply a perversion of you know our tradition, um, and we all we all have to just call it what it is, and if we just, and just make it unacceptable, like just <laughs> it just can't be acceptable, and and let's take the dynamic out, take the dynamic out, and the issues of withholding a child or the issues of the, the alimony maintenance not being fair. Those are legal issues. Manage them in the legal system. You know, like you're better off the- managing them in the legal system, by the way, because Basin can't really do anything to enforce their decisions. So well, you- I'm not, you know, you'll talk about Basin expert. There are things that you can't do in Basin because there's arbitration agreements, and there are things that can't be enforced in Basin. And there and there are very there are legalities in there. Um, you know, like child support and orders of protection. They, the jurisdiction of a Basin they don't have it, right? Right. But when it comes to the assets, I believe that there is some level of jurisdiction if there's people trying arbitration, but put that away. Get through the system, figure out your system, figure it out, flush it out, but don't 
don't use this as a place of abuse. It's it's not good for any of us. It's not good for our community. It's terrible for your soul. It's just terrible. It's <laughs> so yeah, I that's my passion thing. Like stop abusing our religion. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's amen. Um but the thing also is that see the thing to me and it you know it's something that that we actually spoke about shortly before we started recording um you know this conversation is part of a larger series um, right. and it was and you know domestic violence was an issue that i started thinking about as the you know as the aguna issue was becoming it was and is and still is and will and i consider it my responsibility to maintain it that way something that is in the forefront of people's minds and the thing that was interesting to me was that we know that these situations of get refusal never happen in a vacuum. We know that no sane, normal person in a healthy relationship that comes to an end decides, I'm just gonna be a butthead for 10 years. Like it just doesn't happen. It's not a thing. Um, and so I, and so I thought, you know, let's, let's zoom out. Let's talk about what gets us there. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's level 500. What are, you know, what are levels one through? Right, it just, that's just a that symptom of there. a relationship that's full of power and control. Exactly. Right? That's what it is. And like, like, I mean, the Aguna issue, um, in some way is a very public one. Cause we, we know there are Agunos who are able to be public. There are many, many women who are struggling on some level of that spectrum of like trying to negotiate their get who are not willing to, or not able to be public and they are they're really silenced by it um and it and it's really um it is it is just a symptom i mean i think everybody torsky al-sham is quoted saying i don't have it in front of me but it was saying they like anytime there's an aguna issue there's always a background of, of violence and nobody withholds a get unless they behold believe that they have the power and control they believe they should have power and control in the relationship right it's just a form of power and control and let's just define it that way um and there's you know saying or not saying whatever it is, let's not allow that to happen anymore. Um, and, you know, you can only imagine, um, you know, I, I have this, you know, um, I, I took a sabbatical year in 2017 and I came back um, and I had a client who I started working with in 2001, okay, 2001 to 2017. So I was at 16 years. I met her when she was, I think, 31 or 33. She had a few children. Um, and she called me. She tracked me down because I had taken some time off to let me know that she just received her guest. So she was 33 and 16 years later, 48, I guess, 49. Um, and she, you know, she was thrilled to get her get finally. Um, and just all of us take a moment to think about what else he took from her in those 16 years, right? Like, the ability to have another relationship, to have a larger family, even if that wasn't what her goal was, took a, it took away her her reproductive right. I mean, in many ways, um, and and that's you know. And then recently, I was speaking to someone who who was divorced, who got her get simply, and she said someone said to her, she goes, "Well, at least you got your get." And she's like, "Say that again. Like, at least I got my get. Like, why? Like, as if that's like a gift. As if that isn't just an assumption. Like, we chose to not be married anymore. Why should? Why is that even out there anymore? You know, right, like." Right. Why is that even a possibility? Why isn't it a possibility that that we we haven't figured out, we can't figure out? Let's figure out a way that it just it's no longer part of the discussion. That that when a marriage is no longer viable, um, wherever that is, you know, and maybe some communities have different ideas when it should be given. When a marriage is no longer a viable marriage, um, people are not living together anymore. Then you know, and it, it's come to a place where again is appropriate. Then again should be given. Um, yeah, and I just want to make my, my own personal position uh, perfectly clear. And I know that there are people who maybe differ on this and 
that's fine. You don't have to agree with me, but I think you're wrong. Um, that um, uh, any any issues can be worked out in legal court. And the, and the moment that you decide that you are no longer married, you give the get. And any issues, child custody issues, alimony issues, uh, child support issues, um, where you're going to live, all of those issues can be worked out in legal court, um, preferably in a civil way, but I leave that up to you. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and give the get right away. There's absolutely no reason yeah, to be I mean, withholding a get. There's no acceptable reason uh, to, be, um, to be withholding a get, in my personal opinion. Shauna, this was, I'm, I'm so glad we went way over time. Yes. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm glad that we did. Cause this I was do... as fun as it could be to talk about violence. <laughs> I know, right? The funnest conversation you'll ever hear about, about horrible topics. <laughs> Welcome to be impactful. Um, yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you took the, that, um, that you, you made the, carved out the time to really to really break this issue down for us. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you or about Shalom Task Force, where can they go? Come to shalomtaskforce.org. It's a great website, lots of resources, um, and you could contact me through there. My email's on there. Um, just press, and I'm, I'm fairly good at getting back to people, um, so please feel free to reach out um, if I could be helpful in any way. Yeah, thank you for this time. This was fantastic. You are so welcome. The last thing that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes on the show, and that is to you, Dr. Shauna Friedman, what does it mean to make an impact? Um, finding your own strength and your own style um, to make a difference and just, you know, you don't have to be anyone else. You don't have to be any, in any other role, just finding your own role and, and being who you are. Um, and, and not apologizing for that. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Shauna. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Rifty. This was awesome. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Shauna or Shalom Task Force, those links are in the show notes. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. This is the second of a four-part series. I'll be releasing a new episode every Monday over the next two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this now so you don't miss parts three and four, and go back to listen to part one, where activist and survivor Batya Reyes shares her story. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.